Welcome to Clarity, hosted by me, Larry McCann. Are you ready for edgy seat drama, high-octane action, and clandestine intrigue? Then you've come to the wrong place. This is a podcast where we talk about women's issues. What, that's not exciting enough for you? You demand car chases, pothole-filled heists, and gratuitous shootouts? Well, they don't call me the king of compromise for nothing. No one calls you that, Larry. Here are this week's bullet points. Bill Cosby and Roman Polanski have been expelled from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Better late than never, I guess. This just in. Marauding Germanic tribes apologize for the sack of Rome. Chelsea Newman joins us for part two of her interview. We get into the nitty-gritty of Dungeons and Dragons. Basically, she explains how the sausage is made. Or in her case, since she's a vegetarian, how the plant-based meat analog is prepared. Following that is a discussion about the concept of good and evil. The story focuses on how women are portrayed in that context. And finally, the pièce de résistance, the coup de grâce, the Emerald Lagasse saying, bam, I'm pleased to present a new piece of clarity merchandise. I can't wait to tell you all about it. Stay tuned to the end of the episode. You won't want to miss this one. But right now, let's cut to the second part of my interview with Chelsea Newman. D&D always like Lord of the Rings? I'm not particularly a fan of fantasy, and I don't have any interest in being a dwarf or something like that. So Lord of the Rings is very much the stereotypical high fantasy game. The stakes are not always so high as they are in Lord of the Rings. You might have a simple quest be like, a goblin's kidnapped my daughter, can you go save her? And then you get gold or something at the end, which you use to get drunk on booze. If you're someone who in real life doesn't like to drink, that's fine. Your character may like to drink and you get to pretend to be drunk. I always use characters I build as an opportunity to experiment with something that I may not do in my normal life. Something I like to do with my characters, and this is a me thing, this is not an everyone who plays Dungeons and Dragons thing. I like to give them uh, an aspect of my own personality, whether a good trait or a bad trait and then an aspect of their personality of someone I don't like. (laughs) That's amazing. For me, while playing in those mindsets, I'm able to look at things from a different point of view. I based one of my characters, who's a wild magic sorcerer, I based her off somebody that I found super obnoxious. And I found my character was very insecure. So it just helped me empathize with the other person and not find them as annoying in the future. 
they're probably insecure and this is how they're trying to validate themselves because of their insecurities. And that's very much a me thing, that's something that I get personally out of Dungeons & Dragons. It's exploring different mindsets of people, different aspects of my own personality that I may or may not like, seeing how it plays out. I have read articles talking about how Dungeons & Dragons is effective in prisons, for post-traumatic stress disorder, for autistic children. Mm -hmm. And it seems like what you're elaborating on really has a lot of value. Yeah, used in that therapeutic sense, it's a great way to safely work through different emotional issues. When you play with younger kids, it's a great way for them to use their imagination. I know personally, Will will go on and on about these elaborate stories mm -hmm. that I'm guessing he experiences in-game. It's not a real event for him, but he seems almost as invested in his characters and the interaction with other players. And that's something that's a little hard for me to understand. You do seem to be putting a lot of work into the characterization of your character, but are you able to separate that? Explain that process to me. Something I found, and I'm sure there's studies, I find there are no such thing as fake emotions. When you're playing a character and the character feels a certain way about something, and then someone does something to mess with that, that kind of hurts. <laughs> The emotions that you feel while you're acting out a scene, they're real. I think I read, you use the same part of your brain as you would normal emotions in regular life. So you're having conversations in character, playing your character, but the emotions that you feel are real. That's why it can be used for therapy. You're actually addressing different feelings, and usually you will be rewarded for it in-game. You get moments where you can feel like you did something really awesome while you're just sitting at a table surrounded by friends or strangers and you've all shared this really epic moment. The sense of achievement that you feel is real. I might have to give this a chance. I gotta say, it has a bit of a stigma for me. This is sounding like something very useful. Do you think everyone should play D&D? Yes. <laughs> There are different game systems depending on different stories that you would tell. Some require more or less math. I think 5th edition D&D is great for new players. It's very beginner friendly. And because it's often at local game shops, it's very easy to get into. And the 5e starter set, I'm pretty sure you can get for free online. So if you're going to local game stores, there's always someone with a player's handbook. You don't need to invest a lot of money into the game. You can, but you don't need to. So you can just go make some friends. Then if you want to, you can spend the money. But there's no requirement for you to spend the money. Which is another thing I like about it as a struggling young adult. <laughs> it does seem like you can spend a lot of time doing this. And it may be a cheaper hobby than pretty much anything else. Yeah. <laughs> Compared to some of my other hobbies, it's definitely on the cheaper side. From your own experience, you find that if you go to one of these game stores, the community is inviting and will support you and introduce you to the game. Yes. You go in, you say you're a new player, never played before. I'm usually at least one of the people, but there's always at least someone else who will go over and introduce you, welcome you. And then with any community, there are some people that are not as fun to be around than others. When you have enough experience, find who you do like, and even if you're playing at a game shop, eventually you may start your own home game, as we call it, where you pick the people that you do enjoy to be around. With Adventures League and play at game stores, the groups are constantly changing, so each time you go, you get a full enclosed adventure, 
you usually will leave with a satisfied conclusion. And there are very much different types of gameplay. Some people will much prefer to be the number crunchers, doing all the math, getting the best stats, doing the most damage. Then other people will just prefer to roleplay and just talk to people and try and talk their way out of situations. There's not one solution to a problem. That sounds fantastic. I, I am curious, you seem to be alluding to different kinds of settings or tones. Can you elaborate on that? You don't necessarily have to have a fantasy setting? No, it doesn't have to be a fantasy setting. The Adventure Zone, which is one of my favorite D&D podcasts, they started in D&D 5th edition, and most recently they've been testing out a bunch of different game systems. I think it was like Fate? You can play in like a modern setting. Instead of being a dwarf fighter or a monk, you can be a human and a scientist or different ones like Hikey Cat. <laughs> Again, with the, the interrupting. <laughs> she, she's got no manners. Like, to me, that's interesting because a large barrier for me is I'm just not into the fantasy stuff. D&D may not be the perfect game system for you if you're not huge into fantasy. It's like when you're playing games, there's usually some sort of fictional setting going on. But if you're not into fantasy, there are sci-fi systems. And then if you just want a goofy one-shot kind of game, there's one called Honey Heist where you're all just bears. The goal of the game is to get a lot of honey. <laughs> That's something I can relate to. Yep. <laughs> the goal of these games is always to have fun. Play what suits your need. And going online, there's a community for each different type of game. And if you're far apart, there are platforms that will help you play online. So you don't necessarily need to go out. If you're one of those people who likes to hang out in front of your computer, I I am one of those. <laughs> That's intriguing. It seems to be easier and easier to play these games now. I remember reading somewhere that the internet was originally created so people could see how large the world was and it just made the world seem a lot smaller because you can talk to people in different countries instantly while not even a hundred years ago you would have to send a letter and wait a few months to get a letter back. And that's if the letter made it. Yeah, absolutely. And not even talk. Yeah. Video chat with them, which that blows my mind. It's the only reason my mom's okay with me living across the country. <laughs> oh, that's great. You get to have face-to-face -face meetings. Mm -hmm. See, I grew up in the era of payphones. We didn't even have cell phones. So all this is a little overwhelming to me. The technology stuff, that's, that's Will's realm. <laughs> I provide the content. I see, I see. In an earlier episode, we touched on a subject relating to Dungeons & Dragons, where one of the lead designers or creators, Mike Merles, responded in tweets to discrimination against female players. He mentioned things like gatekeeping and rules complexity as being used to discourage women from joining these tables. That's something that we're trying to get out of as a nerd community in general. I believe there are just as many female nerds as there are male nerds. I think the problem is when Dungeons & Dragons was first becoming very popular, it was stigmatized to be more okay for men and okay and acceptable for them. And I think that kind of started with comics. Like comics very much overdid the whole gender stereotypes. It was just believed that nerds are boys, like girls can't be nerds. If you look at some old pictures of children reading comic books, you'll usually see girls reading the comics as well. But at some point that actually changed so that it was all men and all of the 
comics where four boys being the superheroes, saving the damsel in distress. And then as that's grown, there's now this stigma of the creepy nerd living in his mom's basement. I don't think just girls would be, <laughs> or just women sometimes would be kind of creeped out by that. I think we're all adults. Let's try and be like adults because one bad person ruins it for everyone. One creepy guy in a group of 50 guys is going to scare the girl away, which is something we're trying to get out of, which is why when I'm running games, always try and make sure that the girls have a safe place. Something that's great about Dungeons and Dragons is that there's no difference between male and female characters. Any sort of racism or things like that is something that the players will bring to the table. It's not inherently in Dungeons and Dragons. There's no women are weaker than men. Something that in Critical Role, Matthew Mercer does really great, in my opinion. He always has very strong female characters. The whole woman being scared away from tables, it sucks. And I think it's very much because of the stereotypes. I think more and more, a lot of people within the community are trying to get out of that and make people feel welcome because it is a growing community. If you do go out and you are trying to join a table at a game store somewhere and there's nothing but creepy people, go to a different game store. If you're not comfortable in the setting, don't give up. Find a community that you're okay with. I think that that's what the problem is. Sometimes people will go out and try and then have a bad experience and then just give up. Try again. There are great people out there and it's becoming more and more acceptable for everyone to play Dungeons and Dragons because of how it's become mainstreamed among media, like with Critical Role and The Adventure Zone. What are some others? Like Drunks and Dragons is a fun one. They play fourth edition. Yeah, there are several, several fun podcasts that you can listen to D&D. What, what you're describing is pretty great. I am curious, though, what can this community, which I understand is largely white and male, what can that community do to encourage, whether it's gender diversity, uh, racial diversity, how can they help in this process? Don't be creepy. <laughs> uh, that's number one. That even scares me away sometimes. I'm just like, oh, nope, I'm just gonna walk away now. I think from the male perspective, it might be helpful if you elaborate on what creepy means, because I think that that's a fairly broad thing where it's like, I'm not tying up women. I'm not creepy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Creepy as in getting too close, going on and on about how you're single, <laughs> talking about some more controversial things that your character may have done. Because it is very open world, in D&D, you can generally do whatever you want. Sometimes this includes being a very <laughs> racist, bigoted, can you swear here? Uh, absolutely. Racist, bigoted asshole. <laughs> Sometimes that can be fun. Other times, people may not be okay with that. There are times, like, depending on the type of people you're playing with, you may be a table full of guys who may talk about raping people. And it's like, it's a much eviler kind of concept. With Adventures League, chaotic evil characters are not allowed for that reason. And if you are playing a game like that, just make sure everyone who is at the table is okay with those type of concepts or going through those kinds of situations. Because there are some people who will be very turned off and thrown for a loop by it. And you don't want to make people uncomfortable. And if you're at a game like that and you're not okay with it, 
either try and address it, and if they don't change it, then that's not the group for you. Find a group who plays the type of game that you want to play. How do you establish these rules? You, you also mentioned chaotic evil. You kind of lost me there. Okay. But, so I might ask you to define that for me. Is the game master or the dungeon master setting the expectations? Are the players setting it? Is everyone coming together and establishing what kind of behavior is problematic? How does that work? So with Adventures League, it's usually set rules and set stories beforehand. Usually the goal is to be the hero. You want to be the good guy, going around doing the good deeds, solving people's problems, and getting gold for it. It's very much a conversation between everyone at the table. Whether or not you're doing a more maximize the stats and effectiveness and you don't really want to roleplay or talk to anyone, you just want to get into the really tough fights, just try and be strategic and think of things like you're more playing a video game than roleplaying kind of thing. And some people enjoy that, that's their kind of game. Other people aren't a huge fan of the really strategic battles, they don't have fun with that kind of game and they would much prefer talking to people. And it's very much a conversation with the people at your table as to what kind of game you want to play. Some groups with Adventures League specifically will have a combination of the both. Then it's a matter of finding a balance between the players who want to roleplay and the people who want to fight, making sure they also have time to fight. What you're describing is fascinating to me, where you've already pointed out that the game itself, your character, could be totally mundane if you want. If you want to be a doctor in current society, you could run a game like that. Yeah. And not only that, the focus of the actual game can vary between players. So there's much more flexibility than I understood from the outside. Yeah, it's a very flexible game. And if you are trying to join a group that is playing on the more evil side of things, because it is a possibility, it's an option, not everyone's okay with that. My friend who first got me playing, I originally played Pathfinder. He used to play with a very evil group. <laughs> and um, it was fun listening to the stories because there was some crazy shit that he did. But as for me playing, I would never play at that table. I have a very hard time playing evil characters. I don't like empathizing with that mindset. <laughs> I'd much rather be the hero and figure out how you become a better person as opposed to just being an awful person. <laughs> and, th and that's not to say that you can't do some shady things. It's also fun being the rogue, stealing coins from people every now and then. But there's a difference between doing that, killing people in cold blood, going out, raping people, male, female, cutting off their limbs and then just leaving them in the dirt. That's, that's not my kind of game. <laughs> that, that sounds very dark. Uh, it, is, it is very dark. And there are some darker storylines. There's a popular book module for 5th edition called Curse of Strahd, which takes place in a demi-plane, which basically means it's the world, but isolated. You can't leave it. <laughs> it's kind of like being in a giant jail cell. Like but New Jersey. Sure. <laughs> But yeah, and the, and the land is like a 30-foot cube of space that you go around in. And it's an extremely oppressed society. Depending on the group that you're playing with, it can either turn to the group trying to work to get rid of the oppression, which is Strahd, the main villain in the story. Or they're slowly succumbing to this dark nature and becoming very evil themselves. You may overthrow Strahd and try and free the people of Barovia, 
or become its new ruler. It very much depends on the type of group that you're playing with, how you choose to have your character advance. My first game that I was playing in Pathfinder, we were a pirate crew. And by the end, half the party chose to follow this one guy. Half the party decided not to because he was an evil motherfucker. <laughs> so we actually fought each other. And unfortunately, the side I was on lost and Cthulhu got summoned. It was a bad day. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun because we realized it was heading that direction. And we all were like, well, this could be interesting. Let's see where this goes. Because ultimately, emotions may be real even with the game, but it's also a game. Sometimes you may pretend to be angry for the character, but you're actually having a really great time. We didn't know how the story was going to turn out, but we all were okay with PvP or player versus player. Then there are some tables in an Adventures League, PvP is not allowed at all because it does create a lot of conflict. And depending on who you're playing with, sometimes emotions can get very heated. <laughs> People can get angry. When you don't do something and you receive the consequences for an action you didn't do, it's very angering. It seems like you're clearly invested in these characters, mm -hmm. and not only can they change over time, but you're describing situations where you're making decisions for them and trying to do them from their perspective. So it may not be what you truly want for them. Mm -hmm. How do you tap into that? How do you prevent yourself from saying, oh, this is a bad choice because I know it will lead to this problem. How do you embrace what a character might do? Say that out of character. I'll use one of my characters' names. So I'm feeling like Shizu is probably going to do this. I know it's a bad idea, so if any of you want to stop me, now's the time. And then I'll go back into character and be like, all right, I'm going over. I'm going to punch him in the face. <laughs> I assume in this example, a dragon or something like that. Could be. <laughs> Shizu probably wouldn't punch a dragon in the face because it's her goal to befriend dragons. She would probably punch a party member in the face if they were trying to kill a dragon. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. These are all things I've never considered, so I find this whole subject matter fascinating. Yeah, sometimes it can be fun to talk in character about things that are going on, and if emotions start getting heightened, go out of character and then discuss about how you want to embrace the situation. No one wants to leave a game upset. You don't want the emotion to be, I'm so mad that they did this and I couldn't do anything about it. In the improv world, there's a term called yes and. Is that something that might apply to D&D? For sure. The DM especially needs to be really good at it because players can sometimes be like, okay, do they sell those squishy little balls that you can just throw at people at the store? And the DM can either go, nope, they don't. Or they can be like, yeah, you see them on the shelf. They've got like several different colors, like come in sets of three. You get the feeling they were probably used by a clown at some point for juggling. They've got a little wear and tear on them, but they're there. <laughs> so it's very much a yes and. Or you're talking with a party member and you'll be like, hey, I want to go to the brothel. Do you want to go with me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm going to look for a dwarf. Because <laughs> I've never done a dwarf before. I want to do a dwarf. <laughs> All right. Again, fascinating for me. Just a lot of different concepts or things. Or you could be walking through the jungle and be like, I want to climb a tree. And the DM can be like, okay, you don't see a tree that's very good, but you see one with ivy that you think you could climb. It's like, okay, climb it. Make me a con save. You make a con save. You are now poisoned as the <laughs> ivy that you were climbing up is actually poison ivy. And now you have red rashes all over your skin. I'm really started to think about this in a different way. And it makes me 
want to connect it back to the beginning of our conversation where you're talking about children media. Mm -hmm. And it seems like children are basically doing what you're describing when they play. They're using their imagination. They're totally making up a world and characters. Why do you think we get away from that? Honestly, part of it, I think, is the education. When answers are often just given to you, you're not using your head as much. And as the education system is getting farther and farther away from different music classes, art classes, there's no outlet for that creative energy. So you just started using logic and memorization, and eventually it's hard to get that skill back. Children innately have it, and it's part of the developmental process. It's use it or lose it kind of thing. But it's also something you can get back and... Takes, takes a little while, so some people who may show up for D&D may be very uncomfortable. Something I always enforce at my tables when I'm running a game is I'll leave opportunities open for new players to do something crazy, and they can either take it or not. Some people will take it and run with it. Other people aren't quite comfortable in speaking as their own character, so they'll just be like, uh, okay, what what can I do? And I'll give three or four different options of different possibilities. And they'll sometimes just pick one of those instead of coming up with it themselves. And that's just a way to get introduced to the game so that it's not immediately, all right, you're about to fall off a cliff. What do you do? You could say that or, all right, you're about to fall off a cliff. If you have a climber's kit, you can pull out your grappling hook. You can try and just jump off the cliff to the other side and just try and safely navigate your way down. Then they pick which one they want to do based on the options that I've given them. And I'll be like, all right, go ahead, roll me an acrobatics check or a athletics check to see whether or not they succeed and then have consequences that way. Very much trying to open it up and be friendly for people who have lost that creativity. When you're playing with children specifically, I find it's a great way for them to try out different sorts of activities, kind of crazy things while they're going. And it's also a great way to teach them how to act around other people at a group. Children want to do the craziest things. They have the zaniest ideas of things that they want to do. And it sometimes becomes a balance that you need to be like, okay, you can do the crazy things, but you're also slowing down the party. Other people aren't doing things. And sometimes you have to point that out and be like, okay, this is really going to cause a lot of consequences and we're slowing it down. And it's like, oh, you can't do that. That's a very evil thing to do. Your character would not do that. And sometimes it's just a matter of pointing things out to them because you want to leave a world open of possibilities, but you also want to make sure that you guys get through the story and everyone's having fun. Different types of games like that in general doesn't have to be D&D. I think it's a great way to have children use their imagination, but also learn how to work in a team. That's amazing. And it does seem like you can draw so much from this. Mm -hmm. Not only can you deal with topics like racism, diversity, and so on, but you also have to work with other players. And I can see how you could learn a lot of important skills that way. Yeah, D&D is very much a team game. You don't want to fight things by yourself because you'll probably die. How do you feel about a male player role-playing as a female character? I think it's great. When I meet guys who play female characters, I usually know I'm going to like them right away, just because it means that in general they have a very open mind. And they're exploring different aspects of the feminine side of their personality that socially, I think, isn't always acceptable. I love when men are completely comfortable with themselves and their masculinity that they're able to embrace their feminine side. 
I think it's a great show of character and it just shows how great they are with themselves and how open-minded they are. I would have a problem if they're only playing the over-sexualized, stereotypical kind of woman just because they think that's funny. That I would have a problem with unless they're doing that and then they're doing it as a show of insecurity. Deeper, more three-dimensional kind of character. I mean, there's exceptions to everything. How would you personally deal with a situation where, say, a man is being inappropriate and aggressive, you call him out for it, and then he responds, oh, that's just my character. My character's doing that. I don't think that way. Then say, well, you're making me uncomfortable and it's not acceptable. If that is your character, fine, but stop doing it to me. <laughs> and then if they don't do it to anyone else, you know they're full of shit. I, I like that answer. <laughs> With D&D, when you're playing diverse characters that may or may not be like you, I think part of it is you're playing the diverse character because you're trying to understand that mindset. So a lot of my D&D friends will hang out after the game and then just talk about the things that happened, what you did, whether or not that was a good decision or why the character made that decision. It's a great way to start a conversation about those kinds of issues. hope you enjoyed part two of my interview with Chelsea Newman. If you didn't, then you should have no problem role-playing a jerk. Next up is our main story concerning good and evil. The reason I bring up the concept of good and evil is because it ties into a theme I keep harping on and on about. We're dividing into two groups, two teams, an A or a B, a black or a white. And I think that anything that contributes to a model of duality is damaging for nuanced conversation. From Quora.com, Q-U-O-R-A, Marie Stein writes, Women are often portrayed as symbols of evil or weakness because that's what you choose to see. It's all about perspective. Look beneath the surface. When a woman is portrayed as a wicked witch or a temptress, I see that as a symbol of women's power, and most men in those stories are weak and fearful. When a woman is portrayed as weak, it's so the hero has a counterpoint to enable the example of using his strength. Answering the same question, Balaji Viswanathan, CEO of Invento Robotics, writes, In Hindu philosophy, the converse is true, as we have historically portrayed women as a symbol of strength and truth. Women power is a central part of our mythologies. That makes our current gender problems even more ironic. So it is just a matter of cultural differences. In paternal cultures, men are portrayed superior, and in maternal cultures, women are portrayed superior. From whitcomb.sbc.edu, Christopher L.C.E. Whitcomb. Christopher, you really gotta trim down on these initials. If the initials are as long as a lot of names, you're not really shortening anything. Anywho, Christopher writes, Eve, you know from Adam and Eve, the whole Bible thing, Eve represents everything about a woman a man should guard against. In both form and symbol, Eve is woman, 
And because of her, the prevalent belief in the West has been that all women are by nature disobedient, guileless, weak-willed, prone to temptation and evil, disloyal, untrustworthy, deceitful, seductive, and motivated in their thoughts and behavior purely by self-interest. Now I see the pattern. Chris is deeply invested in the war on brevity. No matter what women might achieve in the world, the message of Genesis warns men not to trust them, and women not to trust themselves or each other. Whoever she might be, and whatever her accomplishments, no woman can escape being identified with Eve or being identified as her. This perception of Eve has endured with remarkable tenacity and persists today as a major stumbling block in attempts by women to correct gender-based inequalities between the sexes. Consciously or unconsciously, it continues to serve as the ultimate weapon against women who wish to challenge male hegemony. One strategy has been to adopt a revisionist approach to the story itself and to reread it and reinterpret it in feminist terms. It has been argued that Genesis 2-3 is not inherently patriarchal, and efforts have been made to recover it from centuries of misogynist reading. Phyllis Tribble, professor of sacred literature at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, for example, holds that far from being a secondary or dependent being, Eve is in fact the culmination of creation. The argument that the order of creation in which Adam was created first and Eve second indicates hierarchy and therefore Adam's superiority ignores the fact that animals were created before Adam. As Adam is superior to the animals, then the hierarchy of creation should be reversed, and Eve seen as God's ultimate creation. I really like that. I think that's a nice way to flip something that seems to be mostly overlooked. Christopher continues, Tribble also argues that at the time of their creation, Adam and Eve were equals, and that the inequality between them enters only after Genesis 3.16 as a consequence of disobedience. In other words, inequality between the sexes was not originally part of the divine plan. It would therefore follow that attempts by feminists today to restore equality are in keeping with God's original plan. Now, I'm not a Christian, but I do appreciate attempts within the framework of any theology to change the narrative. From NPR.org Elizabeth Blair writes, Maria Tartar, a professor at Harvard, says old women villains are especially scary because historically, the most powerful person in a child's life was the mother. She's quoted as saying, children do have a way of splitting the mother figure into the evil mother, who's always making rules and regulations, policing your behavior, getting angry at you, and then the benevolent nurturer, the one who is giving and protects you, makes sure that you survive. And I think that's an interesting interpretation. There's a further divide within the duality of good and evil, particularly in how female characters are portrayed. Veronique Tajo, a writer who grew up in the Ivory Coast, thinks there's a fear of female power in general. She says a common figure in African folktales is the old witch who destroys people's souls. As Tajo explains, she's usually a solitary woman. She's already marginal. She's angry at something. And she will eat people's souls, in the sense that she's going to possess people, and then they die a terrible death. The point of these ancient tales, no matter what continent they come from, may have been to scare children into behaving, Elizabeth writes. In Japanese folklore, the Yama Uba is an equally ambiguous old woman. 
She's a mountain witch who, like Baba Yaga, a Russian witch, lures people into her hut and eats them. But she'll also help a lost traveler. Noriko Reeder is a professor at Miami University of Ohio who's done extensive research on Yamauba stories and says she brings fortune and happiness. She can also bring death and destruction for those who are not very good. As Balaji mentioned earlier, how women are portrayed seems very specific to the culture. Elizabeth writes, according to Cuban-American writer Alma Florada, that would never happen to the kind Abuela. In our culture, grandmothers are very important. Ada is co-author of Tales Our Abuelitas Told, which includes a story about a caliph's son who becomes seriously ill. After all of the best physicians in the land fail to cure him, the caliph sends his messengers searching for help. Then one morning, an old woman arrives with this advice. To get well, the prince must wear the tunic of a man who is truly happy. And of course it works. Ada says that in Hispanic culture, old women are multi-talented. They tend to be the ones who keep the family together, who pass on the traditions, who know the remedies that would cure the different illnesses, so it's not surprising that she would appear in popular tales. So again, all portrayals are not equal. In Hispanic culture, and it seems Indian culture, women might be more revered. From IndiaTimes.com, Ravi Shankar writes, Evil has no absolute existence of its own. The Bhavagad Gita says, The good will never perish, evil can never exist. Evil doesn't exist as a separate entity, it is only an appearance. As such, it has only relative, not absolute existence. Just as darkness does not have an existence, it is not an entity or a substance, but only a lack of light. In the same way, Evil is simply lack of goodness. Moreover, according to the Puranas, that's not Puranas, Puranas, P-U-R-A-N-A-S, even the demons finally merge into God. Ravana dies and merges into Rama. This approach avoids the dilemma about evil and the omnipresence of God. Most religions are of the view that God is omnipresent, omnipotent, and omnificent. If God is omnipresent, then there is no place for evil to exist outside of God. If you recognize separate existence for evil, then you have to forego God's omnipresence. If evil is another power that is outside or challenging God's power, then God is not omnipotent. If he is not omnipresent and omnipotent, he can't be omnificent. God loses his essential qualifications to be God if evil exists as a separate force. Again, I like this argument within the framework of religion. Using the internal logic of any dogma to change the narrative is a tremendous approach in my mind. Shankar continues, Thendada holds that evil cannot exist outside God because God is the material cause of the universe. The example is of the spider weaving its web from its saliva. The spider, the cause, is not different from its web. The effect just as Brahm is not different from the universe. I, I'm not entirely sure who Vendata or Brahm is beyond the Western composer, but I really like that metaphor. And I'm going to pretend to fully understand what he's saying. He continues, Islam considers that everything is God's, but does not consider God the material cause of the universe. This basic philosophical difference means that according to Islam, evil can theoretically exist outside God. But if God is not the material cause of the universe, 
then Vendata would hold that it is impossible for God to possess the essential qualifications of omnipresence, omnipotence, and omnificence. The final article I want to get into is written by Dr. Raj Prasad for the Huffington Post. Psychologists Russell Webster and Donald Sassia, based at North Central College and Kansas State University in the USA, point out that the belief in pure evil holds profound consequences for believers, as there would be no point in being patient, tolerant, and understanding when confronted with unalloyed villainy then the only response should be eliminating such evildoers, even if extreme actions are required. If you believe in pure evil, you also deem that evildoers will implacably continue being dangerous. This necessarily follows if certain culprits are indeed the embodiment of undiluted viciousness. On both sides of the conflict, if each sees the other side as evil, this inevitably results in reciprocal and escalating prejudice with violence. The series of investigations involving hundreds of participants found believing that others can be completely immoral in turn leads to more aggressive plus hostile attitudes and behavior. Believers in the existence of pure evil or more pessimistic generally see the world as a more vile and dangerous place, are more opposed to equality, endorse torture, the death penalty, and preemptive military aggression. This most comprehensive investigation to date into our views on deep benevolence, published in the journal Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin, also found belief in pure evil was not associated with being religious. Instead, another conviction, the belief in pure good, was. It appears from this study that those who believe in pure good are fundamentally different from those who believe in pure evil. To me, that's fairly counterintuitive. Personally, from whatever vague Judeo-Christian teachings I absorbed through osmosis, good and evil seem to be fundamentally intertwined. How could you have one without the other? It conceptually makes no sense to have pure evil, but then not to have the opposite of pure good. From the Christian sense, it seems clearly framed as a duality. Dr. Passad continues, Believers in pure good accept the existence of pure altruism, that some people, though rare, intentionally help others just for the sake of helping, with no personal benefit or hidden agenda. They also judge that even the most ghastly perpetrators, i.e. wayward criminals, can see the error of their ways and reform, i.e. they're not purely evil. Those who more strongly believed in pure good supported criminal rehabilitation and opposed the death penalty. Belief in pure good was associated strongly with being religious, as well as those reporting more secular volunteering. The authors speculated that belief in pure evil and religiosity were not as strongly associated as might be expected, because organized religions may recently be downplaying the role of battling evil. But perhaps the sample studied did not contain enough evangelical or fundamentalist participants. Believing strongly in pure good was related to less aggression supporting diplomacy over violence as an approach to foreign affairs and being against torture. One interpretation of the study is that believers in pure good and pure evil end up behaving a bit like the angels and demons they perceive as existing in the world. We become the very demons and angels we think exist. We make them come true. And I think that's a pretty interesting concept. 
I hope you all enjoyed the various perspectives on good versus evil. Next week, I'm taking some inspiration from D&D and detailing a feminist alignment chart. It's that time again. Let's cut to our sponsor. Are you used to the hustle and bustle of metropolitan life? Do quiet nights in the countryside give you anxiety? Is being able to hear yourself think driving you crazy? Have I got the product for you? I'm proud to present the Larry McCannum Urban Ambience Series. We've got traffic, garbage trucks, car alarms, and arguing neighbors. But wait, there's more. Order now, and I'll throw in circling helicopters, dogs barking, and inappropriately loud music. You may be asking yourself, Larry, how could this deal get any sweeter? Well, they don't call me the candy man for nothing. No one, wait, are you sure you want that association? That's right. For the first 20 buyers, we're throwing in elevated trains passing, roommates having obnoxiously vigorous sex, and for those of you in Los Angeles living in Hispanic neighborhoods, fireworks. Fireworks at all times of day, seemingly unrelated to any conceivable holiday. 